Day and welcome to Overdrive, a program about cars and transport and their impact on culture. I'm David Brown and this week we do a road test. We take a different look at the F-Type Jaguar. This time we take it to a park with some sculpture and get a true link between cars and culture. And in our main interview, the National Heavy Vehicle Regulator put out a press release about a truck driver fatigue road safety program they just finished. It sounded too much like spin to us, so Alan Finlay and I look at the real issues. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or any of the socials, podcasts, Facebook, Instagram or YouTube and look for Cars Transport Culture. This program was originally broadcast on the 3rd of February 2024. I meant well, but I don't think I was fully understood. For Australia Day, 26th of January, which recognises the starting date of British colonisation of our country, I borrowed something that reflected the British tradition, a Jaguar F-Type convertible with a V8 supercharged engine. The vehicle, of course, is the spiritual successor to the E-Type Jaguar. Unfortunately, I forgot that we were going to a picnic, which usually means taking an esky, a good amount of food, some folding chairs and preferably a folding picnic table. The F-Type, like its predecessors, has a very small boot. I felt that we may be reduced to taking a couple of jam sandwiches. Not quite. But nonetheless, we had to be remarkably restrained. With some of the Overdrive team, we ventured to a local park in Sydney which had a number of distinctive sculptural features. As the F-Type is a work of art, there was a clear link between motoring and culture. We were, of course, acutely aware of the irony that Jaguar is now owned by an Indian company, somewhat of a reversal of the empire. But who better than to discuss art, motoring and culture than our artist-in-residence, Dean Oliver who also attended the event. This is Overdrive across Australia. The colour of this Jaguar was not striking red or brilliant white or British racing green. It was, well... How do I describe it? Let's ask an expert, Dean Oliver, a resident artist, was there and saw the car and he joins us to talk about it now. Dean, what would you describe the colour of the car as? Hello, David. Well, look, my instincts were to say it's a Jag, it's an F-Type, it's got that fabulous heritage that goes with the brand and with that just that whole thing. And so I'm thinking, okay, it's British Racing Green. It's BRG. And so I'm expecting to see British Racing Green. And with that comes a whole bag of sort of prejudice. <laughs> the history of Jaguar, the history of that whole colour of British Racing Green. Does it belong to Jaguar? Well, maybe not. No, it, it doesn't belong to Jaguar. It, it belongs to... Aston Martin, it belongs to Vanwall, it belongs to BRM and Cooper from the 1950s and 60s. <laughs> so, look, I was, I was totally confused, and uh, look, I, it was Australia Day. There we were, and I had to confront my prejudice. And this wasn't the, the rich British racing green at all. It's a kind of bluish dark green, and it's metallic, 
And the technology of metallic paint certainly didn't exist when British Racing Green first came on the scene. Now, look, the Jag F-Type is just beautiful. It is a stunning car. How can you say a bad thing about the the Jag F-Type, the design? Having said that, though, the, the black convertible roof probably doesn't do it the best. The dark metallic green, it's a fine, lustrous colour, but I was just slightly disappointed by it. The dark, bluish tinge to the metallic colour, I didn't feel that the black wheels and certainly the black convertible top in any way enhanced the colour. It wasn't striking. It had almost a paleness to it in a way, not in the the actual colour, but that it wasn't so striking as as other colours have been. It is perhaps a sophisticated colour for someone who doesn't want to look like a boy racer. A slightly sombre sort of British racing green. Mm. The colour of a a mature person like you or me would probably (laughs) um, enjoy. Maybe a brighter, lighter colour might be just a little bit more garish. But the darker metallic blue, yes, it's a slightly more sombre colour, but it's nevertheless enjoyable and interesting to look at. Almost like an ocean blue in that sense, isn't it? Is there some green in that? There is a greenishness to it, but it, I'm going to say it's a cool green rather than a warm green. And, and to my eye, the traditional British racing green, it, it's a slightly warmer olive green. But in those days, it was a flat colour. Now, here we are, you know, decades later with metallic colours, which can have a deep, lustrous glow to them and look quite different in, uh, in sunshine, in uh, shadow. And the uh, uh, enhancements of wheels and other accoutrements can, can also uh, make, make great changes to, to the appearance of the colour. The interior has some very light brown but strong coloured brown leather both on the seats and on dash and door frames and and door panel. How did you find that? It's quite a striking difference, and it's quite different to the slightly sombre exterior colour. The interior colour has... It's a warm, tan leather upholstery with darker accents to it, which is really quite striking. And there's a sort of a warmth and and a friendliness to the interior, which which is really appealing, really lovely. I think it's like a a man wearing a fairly straight suit uh, without being too adventurous, but wearing a very colourful waistcoat. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, David. I mean, the, the, the dashboard, the seats are this beautiful, warm, lighter shade of tan, and the, the steering wheel, the centre console, is quite a dark grey to almost black, and then there's sort of uh, deep silver-coloured accents to it. It's really very elegant. It looks beautiful. And there's a big Jaguar logo on the steering wheel. The uh, video screen in the centre has got a lovely Jaguar logo on it as well and look the interior is really it's beautiful it's a lovely place to be with really firm seats which really hug you even for a tall person like me uh there's good adjustment to the seats and uh, it's a nice place to be we went on australia day to the headland park in mossman a rather rich suburb so i think it was in its natural environment it's a lovely park in a way because it has some rather unusual sculpture, a lot out of metal, large metal sculptures, 
I had a lecturer one time in urban planning that said sculpture should be the sort of thing that children can play on, that it has that interaction to it rather than just the aesthetic appeal. Oh, yeah, look, Headland Park at Mossman in Sydney, it's a great place. And kudos to the council and the, uh, the owners there. They've brought in some large public sculptures from uh, Sculpture by the Sea, uh, which, is, which is a really well-known uh, Sydney festival in, uh, I think, November or so each year. There are some wonderful large sculptures there of abstract shapes and forms, which are really interesting, lovely things to look at. We were there. It was in the high 30 degrees. It was a baking hot day. And some of the sculptures are made out of copper and bronze. Sitting outside all day in the baking heat to touch those sculptures and even to go and sit on them or stand near them risks third-degree burns. But there have been instances in more charitable weather where children have been seen on sculptures. I was very fortunate to get to know um, Tom Bass, who was a a wonderful sculptor of the 1960s, 70s and 80s in Sydney, who who did lots of public sculpture on some of the famous buildings. He also, there's lots of his public sculpture in Melbourne, in uh, open spaces, in, in parks and gardens. And there's a lovely figurative abstract sculpture of Tom's in, uh, I think it's in the Victoria Gardens in Melbourne. And there's a lovely photo of a little kid reclining on the sculpture reading a book. It showed how there's a, 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 that wonderful acceptance of public sculpture. It's there to be enjoyed and to be used touch and feel in a way to feel the curve of it to feel the shape of it a little is one of the feelings that you can get from good sculpture and dear tom on one occasion he uh, in the 1960s he provided a wonderful sculpture for the P&O building which was on the corner of hunter street and pitt street i think in sydney a wonderful flowing copper sculpture at about waist level which uh, decorated a really ordinary building that Pino had built and uh, sadly it gained some notoriety by the front cover of the Oz magazine. <laughs> but despite a couple of people, you, a couple of gentlemen standing in front of the, the sculpture, its infamy was, is well known. It have a sensuous shape to it that perhaps a young child might not understand? Absolutely, David. And it was the P&O building, and so uh, the, uh, the caption for the photo was just said, uh, P&O. <laughs> <laughs> Dean, the sculpture of the F-type Jaguar, you think it will last? I think it will, David. I think it's terrific. It's such a shame that I think it's come to the end of its production line. Yes. The front, it's elegant, it's got that Jaguar, bloody menacing, prancing look about it. The rear view is fantastic. But in a previous model, there was the, I think the one that we had, the one that you've been driving is the supercharged V8. Hmm. Now, the one that we'd driven earlier was the supercharged V6. And the big difference for me was from the rear view, the two exhaust pipes were together at the back whereas on the V8, they're spaced you know, far apart at the uh, sides of the vehicle, where with the V6, they were both together in the centre, and it was such a, a reminder of the old E-Type V12. Yes. I think that was just a little tiny, tiny detail that I really loved about the older V6. 
F-type Jag. Those exhaust pipes stick out a bit and I burnt my leg on them when I went to the extremely small boot. But a stubby little tail to it, but the lights have a hint at earlier E-type Jaguars. It puts together both history and modern technology. Dean, it was uh, lovely to have Australia Day there, remembering a little bit of our colonial history but also remembering the good parts of that as well. Dean, thanks for your time, mate. I appreciate it. Great to be with you, David. See you soon. And that's Dean Oliver, our artist in residence. And if you think that a car can be described by its looks as either okay, good or great, it's much more detailed than that. And Dean helps bring that out to all of us. You're listening to Overdrive. Dean's mention of the Tom Bass sculpture refers to a piece that was installed in 1963. It is a long, thin installation that looks like the mouth of a large clam. Because it protrudes from the wall of the building, some say it looked like a urinal. While it was commissioned by the P&O company, the satirical magazine Oz pointed out that it was across the road from the French airline building and that as the sculpture reminded some people of a Paris pissoir, in this case you didn't have to pay to use it. Therefore they felt that it was most appropriate to be on the P&O building. You're listening to Overdrive. A short time ago, the National Heavy Vehicle Regulator put out a press release which said, and under the heading, a national success, NHVR reveals outcomes of major fatigue operations. And they had been conducting an exercise to encourage truck drivers not to drive fatigue. The press release read, to my mind, a little bit more like PR than it read like a technical understanding of the broad issues, but we will try to talk to them in the future and see what that means. But to try and raise some of the issues, I have on the line our good friend Alan Finlay, who is a traffic engineer and transport expert, to talk about some of the broader issues. Alan, thank you very much for your time. Not at all, David. Let's start with that. The point about the press release, of course, emphasised the negative of how bad it is, and we would agree with that. But it didn't emphasise the positive. That is that the great majority of the truck drivers passed the test when they stopped over 3,000, was it, truck drivers? They tested them and found out, and the great majority passed. One shouldn't fail to emphasise that a lot of truckies were doing the right thing. That's right. I, I think, generally speaking, the vast majority of drivers are trying to do the right thing, but there is amazing pressure on the industry uh, as a whole and on uh, on drivers in particular. After all, at the end of the day, it's the, it's the driver who ultimately decides whether to take a rest break or not take a rest break in order to achieve a deadline that might have been imposed on them. One of the, the things that's been positive for the industry is this introduction of what they call the chain of responsibility so that nowadays there is an onus on the freight forwarder and on the trucking company, the management of the trucking company, right back to the, the customer who is the, the freight forwarder to take responsibility to make sure that everyone in that chain is aware of the requirements that must be followed, rest breaks, 
adequate uh, rest between driving shifts and so on. So I, I think that's a positive, but it, it is a little bit perhaps unfair to put the whole onus on the on the drivers. Yeah, that's exactly the case. The very worst driving I do, and you and Timmy rant and rave about the need for good, safe driving, but I'm at my worst when I'm running late. Yes, that's right. But whenever we're running late for something and we feel a, an imperative to get there, there is a temptation to take risks, you know, perhaps run a yellow light, perhaps speed over the, the speed limit and so on. So there is that pressure and human nature being what it is, drivers will try to comply with any deadlines that might have been imposed on them. It's not only the deadline too, it's how you run the truck. If a truck gets balked going up a hill, that's going to use more petrol and cause more frustration and I sit a reasonable distance behind the vehicle in front of me. There's quite a number of drivers, not only truck drivers, who feel that I should try and move up and be a little closer. And it's all to do with having to solve problems of logistics. You know, they're my late. I got room to get a good run at the hill, you know, within the speed, even within the speed limits. So it can be these logistical things. And industry has pushed much harder for this. We've had just in time for a long time, but we've now almost taken that to the nth degree. Lots of industries now, manufacturing industries and warehousing industries, don't carry uh, a lot of stock and they don't want to incur the cost of warehousing. So the idea is that you have the raw goods or the, the goods that you need for processing brought in just in time for the manufacturing process. So that relies on the, the truck being able to deliver the goods within, say, a 15-minute window or a half-hour window, which puts an awful lot of pressure on the driver then to comply with that. And the chances are that if they miss that window, then they might have to go to the back of the queue, which puts their next job so much later and so on. There was conditions in contracts that said you then had to deliver it tomorrow free, <laughs> which, of course, certainly increases the cost to the driver. I had a colleague, a journalist, trucking journalist in the fleet part of the industry, who was following a truck as part of an exercise from, I think it was Alice Springs to Darwin, and the truck driver at the stop said to him, look, you're travelling at 98 kilometres an hour. I'm allowed to travel at 100. And my mate said, oh, sorry, is that, is that a big issue? He said, oh, yeah, I've got a 15-minute window when I get to Darwin, 2,000 or more kilometre trip. Yes, yes. We interviewed a person representing the trucking industry some time ago that was trying to push for better legislation that stopped these types of contracts which, from a business point of view, and it's not only just not keeping stock, which is a very valid point, but it's also just absolutely maximising their operations in their docks. Mm. There's always a truck there. Mm. There was this push to say, hang on, legislation or contracts inevitably lead to unsafe situations by the business arrangements that you're trying to make. That's why it's important when considering heavy vehicle safety that it takes into account that whole chain of responsibility from the freight forwarder right through to the trucking company management and eventually to the driver. That all has to work as a team and they all have to be aware of the road safety implications of having uh, two onerous provisions on, on deadlines and so on. Driving a truck was... So much you know, like a cowboy, a good cowboy, handling that big event and that, 
Uh, I think that was more prominent perhaps a few years ago. Do you think that that sort of desire and therefore number of people to do it is changing? I haven't seen the figures, uh, recent figures, but I know some years ago there was a lot of competition in the industry because a lot of drivers were owner drivers. So they would have taken out a very significant loan in order to purchase uh, say a prime mover and a trailer and that meant that there was a, a lot of pressure on them to have the money keep on coming in in order to repay the loan. I guess that was that was probably sold to them as the dream of you know be your own boss and therefore if you're the owner driver you decide what loads you take and where you go and how long you work and so on. But I think in some cases it became a bit of a, a very onerous occupation in that there was an awful lot of pressure then to work very, very long hours in order to keep the money coming in. And if you didn't do it, someone else would? Yes, there was a lot of competition uh, when there are a lot of owner-drivers involved because if you rejected a load or a job because you didn't think it was possible to do it in the in the time frame that was set, there would probably be someone else in the queue or in the pool of, um, of owner-drivers who would take on the job. It reminds me of a story. There was a driver that acted in a irresponsible manner and the company sacked him of when he then went out and joined another company and caused a crash that killed a driver in the first company that he had left. Oh, dear. Yeah. That there is a notion of not just short-term solving a problem but solving the issue. Yes, yes, that's right. It's a fraught situation I mean, a lot of people say, oh, we should be putting all of the freight on rail. Some some people have a very simplistic solution and says, yes, we should get rid of all the trucks on the road and everything should go by rail. But that that's just not feasible for our modern logistics industry. As I once said to someone who was suggesting that for um, the north coast of New South Wales on the Pacific Highway when it had a dreadful uh, road safety accident problem. How many times have you seen a rail freight siding be behind your Woolworth store? Mm. Because that's just the harsh reality. Rail is very good for long distance interstate freight where there's no time pressure on the freight. And it's particularly good for bulk goods, obviously coal, wheat, and um, some of the other mineral products and so on. But it's not really practical for short term, uh, short distance freight. And ultimately, most freight is going to end up being moved by road at the start and the end of the journey. I facilitated a session one time with some local community people on the North Coast, which included an industry people, and one of them said, we did everything in our power to try and use rail, and it just wasn't feasible, just wasn't reliable. And your point about time, it's not condemning rail, it's just a, a practical reality that we've got to come to grips with. It's horses for courses, as they say. Uh, rail is very good for uh, very long-distance freight, and if you look at the sort of freight that moves across the Nullarbor on double-stacked container trains, that makes perfect sense. But for journeys um, of less than a 1,000 kilometres, and particularly for what they call broken-up freight, where it's lots of different types of packages and parcels and so on, the logistics mean that at the end of the day, something is going to have to be moved on a truck to get to the ultimate selling point. So uh, it doesn't make sense to have a, a transfer at both ends from um, truck to rail and then rail to truck. The NHVR then followed that press release up with another one that said 
They urge truckies to be prepared and prioritise safe driving practices in wet weather conditions. Can be a little bit of preaching to the converted, really, isn't it? I, th- I think so. I think I think truck drivers in particular would be uh, well and truly aware of the extra dangers that wet weather conditions uh, entail. The majority of truck drivers are extremely aware of their stopping distances. As you know, the, the stopping distance for a truck is uh, is vastly greater than what it is for um, a car or a conventional passenger vehicle, and uh, they generally allow for adequate stopping distances when they approach hazards. So sometimes the car drivers are their own worst enemies by jumping into what looks like a huge gap, uh, not realising that the truck needs all of that space to to stop at, say, a red light or at a, a stop sign or an intersection. I wonder if the education, for want of a better word, or the reminding of people is to say that if you have an accident, it'll cost you days off the road and that it puts together the practical realities of it rather than just the moral issue. The moral issue is fine, but preaching morality hasn't really proved to be as successful as many an evangelist might like to think so. Given a reality, I'm reminded of the very fast train proposals that they were going to put in India. And they were to say, well, we'll put up fences all down the side of it and the proponent said well no that cost me money until they said well it could kill somebody and they said well if it does that then your train will be off the tracks for you know days and whatever so they put up the fences yes yes i'm not condemning a particular nation i think that that is the harsh business reality and then motivator that for better or for worse happens to be a reality Mm, i think that's right you're right about making sure that all of the players in the industry are aware of the ramifications of an adverse event. As you say, the, the truck driver probably needs to be reminded that uh, not only would they be fined and perhaps um, suffer a, a heavy penalty that way, but they could also lose their licence or have their licence suspended, and that means not being able to work. And if that's the only source of their livelihood, then that's going to create some very significant problems for them. The industry now knows a lot more about what the truck's doing, that perhaps there's a responsibility that if the industry does know through telematics, they know where the truck is, what it is, they probably know more about the truck as problems may develop before the truck driver does. No common information of that. They're measuring the temperature in the diff, for example. That really there's a, a joint responsibility that if they are finding that that's happening, Maybe we don't need to just fine the truck driver. We need to fine, define or penalise the person that put the pressure on them. Yes, exactly. And that comes back to that chain of responsibility that I was talking about um, so that the, the, the responsibility falls not only on the driver but also on the fleet manager, you know, the driver's, uh, if it's a company, the driver's manager and then ultimately the manager of the trucking company and ultimately, again, the freight forwarder. If the freight forwarder is imposing impossible deadlines, then the freight forwarder should also have some responsibility if there are adverse outcomes. It also raises the point that we've touched on in the past, and I'll just finish there, is saying that if a truck driver doesn't want to be late, then they have to set aside a lot of time and then sit in the street outside waiting, usually with their diesel engine idling, 
keep the air conditioning going, and that's for fair enough. We we do it outside schools and everything in our own cars, that that adds to a pollution effect. Electric vehicles may help change that, but I'm not for the moment trying to say that's a, a simple or a one-all reflection or solution to it. But it is an example of cause and effect, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Because if a, if a truck does arrive early, then it needs somewhere to park and wait. And sometimes that will be in a, uh, a residential street that's bordering an industrial area, or sometimes it will be in an industrial area and there just may not be any space at all for the, for the truck to, to wait there. So it does have lots of implications. Without those being held accountable for the cost of that, maybe that's part of that whole line of chain of command. Mm. Alan, lovely to talk to you and I appreciate your perceptions and depth. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, David. And that's Alan Finlay, who is a traffic engineer and transport planner who has been involved in a wide range of practical applications of what we use on our road. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Dean Oliver, Alan Finlay, Bruce Potter and Mark Wesley for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or the socials and podcasts. Look for Cars, Transport, Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for being part of the program. Thank you.